from the EBKV Studios in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you're listening to Coast to Coast on Brotherly Pod with your hosts, Julia, Anthony, and Dan. everybody to coast to coast it is almost the end of the season the playoffs could end tonight we are about uh six hours away from game six the blues are up three to two in the series uh we are going to talk about all that and more but first let's talk uh enter my co-hosts first from the fourth period.com anthony demarcos here anthony how you doing not too bad dan how are you I'm doing good. The studio is incredibly hot, but I am doing okay. And uh, from nationalpuck.com, Julia Kender is always joining us. Julia, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. All right. Well, as I opened with, the playoffs could end tonight. St. Louis is up 3-2. to two. Uh, There have been... This has been a wild series for all kinds of different uh, manners, but first, let's kind of talk the Chara Zidane Chara broke his jaw. He's been playing injured. I believe he's dealing with other injuries as well. This guy is, what, 41, 42 years old, playing. You know, there's a lot of people say, oh, you know, he's 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 a hockey player. He's tough. He's playing through it. But, you know, is he doing more harm than good playing through his injuries, Julia? Yeah, see, he's 42 years old. And I feel like it's just dangerous at this point for his own health and for the team. Um I feel like it's not a light injury that you can just play through. It's his jaw. And he gave a press conference recently, and he had to talk without moving his jaw, which was just painful to watch. And I can't even imagine what it's like getting hit. Even in the shoulder, it can, like, jostle you. So I'm sure he's playing in a considerable amount of pain. And it's just kind of ridiculous to me. And I'm, I worry that it might become more than it is and it also might start impacting the team if he's not on his a game he might start hurting more than helping now he does have a contract for next season but there has been rumor whether it's substantiated or not that you know this could be his final run because of you know he's just he's getting old you know he's 42 he's clearly not what he was even though he's still semi-proficient for a 42 year old uh, in terms of what his production is on the ice anthony you have any thoughts on zidane or well, I think that if the Bruins' defense was fully healthy, like if Matt Greslick and Kevin Miller were in the lineup, he probably would not be playing. But the thing is, is that he's such a big factor on the penalty kill for them. He makes Charlie McAvoy better. Um, and I just think that they they don't really have the bodies right now to be able to afford to scratch him. They, they went with 7D last uh, game to try and temper his minutes at even strength. But... I think we all know that if this was regular season or potentially even just earlier in the playoffs, he wouldn't be playing. And uh, he's playing through it because he wants to help his team win a cup. So I think for the Bruins, it's a plus that he's playing. But for him, he's obviously not 100%. 
yeah, it comes down to, you know, it, this happens all the time this time of year. I'm sure in, uh, you know, if the season ends tonight, whether it ends tonight or, or Wednesday, whenever Game 7 is, you know, after, once the uh, players come through, we're going to hear all kinds of injuries, you know. Bergeron's playing with one arm and, and Bennington's playing with one foot. You know, we're going to hear all kinds of crazy stuff. So it is what it is. Obviously, players do play with broken jaws, not semi-regularly, but it is known to happen. Um even during the regular season. So it's obviously not the best thing, and the best thing, especially for somebody who's 42 years old, is to uh, to take some time off and play. But at this time of year, you know, you're going to play through your whole, uh, the whole run, you know, whether you're injured or not, unfortunately. So let's talk about probably the bigger thing that's gone on uh, in this series and really throughout the entire playoffs, the questionable officiating. Uh, the Blues won game uh, five via a goal that, well, came by a trip from Tyler Bozak, scored on the goal, uh, I believe it was, uh, I don't have the name of the player who tripped in front of me, but yeah, it was, <laughs> they tripped him, everybody was angry, you know, it was okay because it was Boston, who cares about the Bruins, it was some kind of karma there, but at the end of the day, this is a problem for the sport. This is a problem that we've seen throughout the playoffs. I think with at least every series, it's happened at least once with some questionable call that has a uh, questionable call, a questionable no call that has uh, ruined a game. Anthony, you have any thoughts on this uh, officiating? Well, I'm not shocked. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. But, um, you know, it's everyone's just trying to, like, figure out a solution, what they could do, what reviews, put an eye in the sky. But it just comes down to they have to be better. These are the best reps in the NHL. And they just have to be better. And I, a, a local radio host uh, in Montreal here said it perfectly. He said, you literally just have to tell the refs to call the rule book. Because we touched on it in our last show that they change the way they officiate the game based on where they are in the playoffs and even as the game goes on later, in the as it gets later in the game. So I just think if you tell the refs, call the rule book. If it's a trip, it's a trip. Don't do this whole let them play thing. The refs just have to be better. And I, you're seeing it now. I can guarantee that it's going to happen again in these playoffs. Like that that one wasn't maybe as game-changing as, let's say, uh, say the hand pass in overtime with the Sharks. But it, it just comes down to it's going to keep happening unless the refs just improve. And I believe it will not even solve it if they expand video review if the refs just don't improve. One of the things about sticking to the rulebook is somebody had a, uh, the picture on Twitter of the rulebook, and, and they did this again during Game uh, game 7 of the Sharks Vegas series. The rulebook is kind of like, you know, it's up to the refs' discretion how they feel. And to an extent, I understand that, but... Something has to be black and white at some point. You know, when the cross-checking for, for the Sharks Vegas series, it said, you know, it's up to the ref's discretion whether they feel it's a five-minute major or not. And in that sense, you know, Stastny was, uh, not Stastny, was it Pavelski, was, you know, fell directly on his head, but it wasn't directly, you know, linked to that. It was the whoever flipped him, flipped him over afterwards that did that. So it's one of those things that, you know, how do you fix this? You know, we talked about this last week with the expanded video reviews. You know, do you make everything reviewable? Do you sit there and say, you know, it's human error? But at what point is the human error just costing games? And this isn't just a one-time thing. This has happened over and over and over again in these playoffs. You know, changing the game, like you said, the, the, you know, ch following the rulebook and making things happen. 
and not changing the way they officiate. You know, some games they put the whistles away and then, you know, they only wait till something's really bad to call it or something like that. I think they just need to have a standard way of, of calling a game without any added, um, you know, side effects, if you want to call it that. You know, the, the, the way they change the game that eventually... Uh, puts a negative spin on things. I j- you just, it's, it's hard watching these games. You know, if you're in the playoffs, these are supposed to be the time of year where the casual fans are watching. You know, we are all obviously pretty dedicated to this and big fans. You know, the people that watch this semi-regularly catch, you know, 15, 20 games a year, and then they watch the playoffs. You're watching this garbage with the refs, and it's like, there's no way it's helping grow your fan base. It's not helping grow fans long-term. It can't be doing good in the ratings. I just, I don't know. They, this is a big problem in my eyes that they need to address sometime soon. Yeah, well, that's it for me as well, because it's getting worse and worse, and it's not stopping. And usually what happens is as you get later on in the playoffs, especially in the cup final, you have the so-called best refs, and they are. But even the best refs are repeatedly messing up in big portions of the game, and that's not even like a so-so call. Like that's a blatant trip yeah. in the thick of the play. Achari, like he went almost head over heels. So I just don't know how you miss that call. And it's almost like the rest can rationalize it. Like, oh, well, you don't want to give a penalty at that point in the game and change the game. But you did by doing the exact opposite because Achari did, wasn't even on his feet by the time the puck went in the net. So yeah, I'm with you. It's becoming a really big problem. But I still stand by the fact that even if you expand video review, which I think they will in some capacity, the refs still just have to be better. Like, it's inexcusable how bad they've been. You can't just leave everything up to video review. And that's the thing is, how do you change it? You know, do you sit down and you sit all the refs down like they're five years old in kindergarten and go, this is a trip. This is a what a hook looks like. This is not a hook. This is a, you know, do you do that? Do you expand the video review? Do you accept that there's human error in the game and you're going to make big mistakes and key moments of the playoffs? And it's just, I don't know. This seems, this is all just crazy to me. Julia, you have any uh, thoughts? I think that there's only so much that can account for human error. I feel like at some point it's just inconsistency. Um, they're, yeah, like refs are going to miss something, but the trip that happened, the Bozak trip, it was in the middle of play with the puck. Like there was no way that they could have missed that. Um, at least one of the refs could have seen it and called it. So I think that at some point it's just inconsistency and there needs to be something across the board. And you would think, you would think a rule book would be the thing that everyone would follow and that that would create the consistency, but obviously it's not. They sort of put it away at this point in the playoffs um, and just call what they want to call, which is not the best uh, as we have seen. So I think that there just needs to be something that changes because these are the best refs monitoring the best players and what's going on. Like it doesn't, it doesn't compute. You know, like it doesn't add up that they're missing all of these really significant calls on the ice. The Bozak hit, especially, there was a ref in, in the corner watching the play. Bozak tricked him. He threw his arms up in the air because he knew he screwed up. And there was yeah. no call. Now, granted, Akari sold it for all he's worth. He was down on the ice for far longer than he should have been, you know, which certainly doesn't help the case of, you know, the, the Bruins 
or the Blues, rather, you know, kind of getting the penalty. But, like, come on! You were watching the play! Just keep one set of rules throughout. You know, like, makeup calls are one thing. You know, if you're going to be ticky-tack like that, that's fine. But if you're going to put your whistles away, put your whistles away. Don't call something or don't call something afterwards. Ugh, this it's so frustrating. You know, it's one thing when it happens during the regular season. And we as Flyers fans see it <laughs> seemingly every couple games. You know, a, a bad call against, a missed call against, something. You know, but it's these are the play. This is supposed to be the big timey year where everybody's watching, and you're gonna try and get new fans, and they're gonna turn a game on and watch this. <laughs> I can't imagine making new fans like that. It would drive me nuts. I would see something like that and never watch hockey again if I wasn't in this. You know, uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, I agree, Dan. It's it's putting a bad stain on the league, and it's getting worse and worse. And I think it's bad for the the expansion of the league. They're, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to grow the game because you guys are no better than me, being American. But it's not the first foremost sport in in the states. It, you could make it argue that's fourth. So you keep doing this in front on such a grand stage where there's so many casual fans watching, and it looks Mickey Mouse. It it, it looks like a you know like rec hockey or whatever. They they have to fix it. And I think it does just start with the rest being better. And if it takes them, to, as you mentioned, to put them in like a school like class setting and literally like painting it out for them, then so be it. But it, because even if you do leave it up to expanded video review, that doesn't look too good either. Like the rest literally have to ha- have their hand held like through the whole like game. Like, okay, no, you missed this. Okay, you blew that. Okay, we're gonna correct this. It's gonna it's gonna affect the game. In other ways, like, yes, the correct calls will be made, but it's still going to be like, oh, my God, like, are you serious? Like, every single game, there's, like, two or three times where something has to be rectified by an eye in the sky or whatever. It, it, it's really something to watch. I, I, I was in shock the other night when it happened. And it's just it just happens. And again, this this if the, if the Bozak trip was a singular incident, it would be maybe not excusable, but it would be fine. You know, it happens, human error happens, but the fact that it's happened over and over and over again in the playoffs alone is just, it's infuriating how bad this is. It's, I don't know. I, I, there's just, again, how do you fix it? Do you fire all your refs and start again? Do you school them? Do you go for this expanded video review and review every single questionable uh, questionable play that happens on the ice? There's no easy fix, and I just, I don't know. It's killing the game. Like you said, ratings in the U.S., this is a four of four for most people. You know, maybe for some people it's above baseball, some people it's above whatever, but there's no way this is a popular sport. And the television ratings say the same thing. You know, you look at what basketball's doing and what hockey's doing, you know, what the, the NBA playoffs versus NHL playoffs, it's astounding how many more people are watching basketball. You know, I don't know. This is just not growing the sport. It drives me nuts. This is the kind of stuff that it's just... Play the game, you know? Follow the rule book. Why are we making up rules and... I don't <sighs> I could rant about this stuff all day. Um, the other news happening with this series is now Ivan Barbashev. These suspen- if you told me that the Blues would have more suspensions than the Bruins heading into this series, I would not believe you. But now it's Ivan Barbashev who hit, uh, what, Marcus Johansson in the head, was suspended for one game. Uh, anybody have thoughts on this uh, suspension? Well, it was another call that was missed. Um, they didn't call it on the ice. 
which it was a blatant head hit, so it should have been called. Um, but I think that, I don't know, I think that suspensions have been a little inconsistent as well throughout this whole playoff uh, run. But I think that it, I think it was the right call. I don't think that it should have been more than one game, but it was a blatant head hit. Um, and it shook Marcus Johansson up, so like as any head hit would. Um, so I think it was, I think it was the wrong call on the ice, but I think overall, I think it was right that it should have been looked at. And I think I'm okay with the fact that it was a suspension. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. It, it was uh, it was the right call to suspend them. I think that if it was the regular season, it would have been more games. But uh, yeah, I, it was a good call on them. I've actually been pleasantly surprised with how the um, player safety department has, has been handling all situations in the playoffs. And I think it was the right call. Uh, you can't you can't hit guys in the head and. That it's been that way for about ten years now. So anytime that someone does it, I just think it's inexcusable. That's another thing I could get ranting about is headshots. Why do players still hit people in the head? Why do people still board people in dangerous scenarios when they hit their numbers? It's twenty nineteen, guys. Why are we still doing this? <sighs> <laughs> You're a little rattled there, eh, Dan? Yeah, why are we still concussing people in 2019 with these dumb hits? Why is it so dangerous? How hard is it to not hit people in the head? I played hockey for years growing up and never headshot anybody. Like, I get it's the NHL and I get you're trying to, you know, it's the playoffs and, and whatever, but this happens all the time. God, these hits, dangerous hits, you're risking people's careers for this shit. Why? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's... Like it's not like a new concept. No. Like it's been this way for a while, and all these like former players, like Nick Boynton and Dan Carcillo, and all those players who died, like Bugard and Belak and uh, Rick Rippin. Like it, it, it's well known, and you guys just repeatedly do it over and over and over. And I, as you mentioned, it's just like why? I get it that like you have the urge and the adrenaline's going. And you don't really think that well on your feet, but man, oh man, it's like, I, I just have no words for it. Like, just don't hit in the head. Like, and some of them, like, it's like, okay, if you make minor contact with the head, like if you, if a taller player hits a shorter player, that, okay, I can understand. But like some of these hits, it's like, they take the head clean off. Like it's the principal point of contact. And I don't know. I, I just think it's like, it's definitely gotten better, but I just don't know how it still happens. There's incidental contact and accidents happen, but I'm watching the Barbashev hit right now, and he took fucking Johansson's head clean off his body. God, why do we do this? How hard is it to keep players safe anymore? Yeah. It could have easily been a shoulder-on-shoulder thing, too. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. There's there's just no excuse for headshots. There's no excuse for it. You know, accidents happen, and sometimes I get it. You know, not all hits are bad. We talked about the Bacchus one on the last episode. You know, he got rocked, but it wasn't a bad hit. You know, this is just... Boggles my mind that this stuff happens anymore. Uh, Let's talk some other breaking news around the NHL. Jeff Skinner. (laughs) <laughs> got his eight-year, $9 million contract from, well, $9 million a season contract from the Buffalo Sabres. We touched upon this last week before he signed the deal about how Buffalo 
essentially didn't have a choice but to sign him, and uh, he ended up getting getting paid. Anthony, you've heard anything on uh, the Jeff Skinner deal? Yeah, well, it also includes a full no movement clause. So that <laughs> oh that's something that's that's pretty substantial. So Buffalo, I think, is going to be straddled with this for the long haul because I, I think that Jack Eichel had a lot to do with it. I think it's been well documented that Eichel has a lot of pull in that organization, and he finally found a guy who he has elite chemistry with. Now, I'll echo what I said last week. I think from a Buffalo standpoint, they had to do it. They don't have the talent within their organization to replace him. They've, you know, it's not like they have a lot of guys coming up the pipeline. Alex Nylander is looking like a bust and a half that they took in 2016 at, I believe it was eighth overall. So they had to give him this deal. But look at the look at the contracts that it's most comparable to: Tyler Sagan, Steven Stamkos, Jamie Ben, Jakub Voracek, yeah. and Logan Couture. Now, besides Jakub Voracek, who, if you actually look at the percentage of the cap that the deals took up at their respective signings, it's pretty much identical at 11.5. Are you prepared to say that he's in the same stratosphere as Tyler Sagan and Steven Stamkos and Jimmy Benn? No, he, he's not. And I, I think he's almost there. And I think he's a first-line player. But $9 million for a guy who's never eclipsed 65 or 70 points, I think his career high is 63 yeah, it, we know that there's a premium on goals, and he's a 40-goal scorer, but I don't know. It, it's tough. I said it last week. I'll say it again. It's really tough for me to lock up $9 million into a winger, and albeit an undersized winger, because I don't think anyone could say that Jake Voracek's overpaid anymore, because Voracek, on, I think he's hit 80 points more than once, and he's also a big guy. So he'll be able to st- sustain it longer. So, yeah, I-, I think it's a lot of money. I think it's too much money. The kicker being the no movement clause just makes it that much worse. But, again, Buffalo had no choice. Their hands were tied. Voracek has broken the 80-point plateau twice in the last five seasons. And twice he hit uh, 60 and then one with 55. Yeah, I'm not a big Jake Voracek fan. If, you- if you're a frequent listener to these shows, you know that I'm not his biggest fan, but... I'm not super thrilled with his contract, but again, it's the same percentage now with the cap moving up, but Jeff Skinner getting $9 million. Now, he hit 37 goals a couple of years ago. His career high is 63. He hit that on three separate occasions. $9 million for a 63-point player. Now, granted, when 40 of those points are goals, that does you know change things a little bit, but overall, it's just it's a lot. But we live in a day, there was a time, maybe 10 years ago, when contracts were just getting thrown around like crazy. And people were getting locked up to big numbers. And then over the last five years, especially if you look at the free agency numbers, things were slowing down. You know, people weren't really overpaying too much anymore. You know, it didn't seem like GMs were getting reasonable again. And over the last maybe year or two, with all of these, you know, superstar young talent that's coming up, you know, these numbers are getting wild again. And I think Jeff Skinner is the beneficiary of these numbers getting wild again. Well, yeah, and it sets the stage for the young superstar talent. Like, Mitch Marner must be licking his chops. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right on the other side of Niagara Falls in Toronto. And what does that say for Marner and Taylor Hall? Like, Taylor Hall next year, like, he's going to be at least at $11 million. And I said on the last show, I don't think, besides Patrick Kane, 
there was a winger in the NHL who made double digits. But now that Skinner's getting nine, what's Hall going to get? What are these guys going to get? Like, it looks like some wingers are going to be getting, like, Connor McDavid money soon. I I just, again, I will reiterate that I think for Buffalo, they had to do it. And I don't disagree with the move. But, man, this is going to turn into a real slippery slope fast. Because look at Patrick Laine. Like, Patrick Laine, that's going to be the starting point. And it's only going to go up from there. Mitch Marner, as we mentioned. So, yeah, I like you said, Dan, it's just been trending in this direction for a while. And I think Skinner is just the first domino to fall. And the salary cap is going up. So, in a way, it's the same percentage as Jake Voracek, who's making three quarters of a million dollars less. But it's the kind of thing where teams are going to find themselves within the next three, four years. Multiple teams are going to be in the situation that Toronto's in. You know, they're going to be paying... $3 million, you know, or three players, rather, $10, 10 $11 million, and they're going to be screwed everywhere else, you know, like just like the Chicago. We're going to see this more often. And, again, the three guys, you know, Point, Line A, and uh, Marner that are up this summer looking for contracts. You got Halls up next summer. These guys are going to get an obscene amount of money. It may, su- may not surprise me at all if Connor McDavid is not the highest paid guy before too long. Yeah, and I agree. And I just think that it's 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 going to capstrap a lot of teams because younger players are just in higher demand now because we said on our last show again, there's always going to be a fish because we all know Skinner would have found that money elsewhere. He would have. So what is Buffalo supposed to do? They were going to lose him to free agency. And what leg do they have to stand on? They didn't make the playoffs with him. So letting them walk, they were only going to get worse. The free agent class isn't at that good to begin with, so they had to give it to him. But now you're going to see like guys like Marner, who I think if he were to, let's say, like field offer sheets, I think he would get Connor McDavid money. I think 100% he would. So I think you're right on the ball there that pretty soon McDavid will not be the highest play- paid player in the league. Julia, you got any thoughts? Yeah, you guys are covering exactly what I was thinking. Like, I think that this is just going to be a trend from now on for wingers getting paid higher and higher. And I think that with these big contracts coming up, like Mitch Marner and Braden Point, I think that they're going to be able to elicit more money now because, hey, Jeff Skinner, who's a winger and also small, like like Mitch Marner is, um, got paid $9 million per year. And... I think that with the cap expanding, um, it's going to be a little more feasible. But I think that it's going to lead to some wingers getting some astronomical contracts. There used to be, you know, kind of the middle ground contracts. And Drew Doughty is an example because he kind of just signed one. Um, he would come off his ELC, then he signed an eight-year, $56 million deal, which is $7 million a year, which is high price, but not, you know, superstar money. And then his most recent contract is eleven, And we're probably going to see the same thing with Eric Carlson, who is coming off a seven-year, $45 million deal, which is six and a half a season. And, you know, you it, players used to kind of get that bump, where they would get a big raise, they would get that kind of money, and then they would sign their, you know, elite-level uh, elite deals in their late 20s. Versus now, when these young guys... They're going to get it now as their first full contract, you know. And again, we talked about it with Skinner, talked about it with Marner. If you don't pay them yourself, somebody's going to pay them. You know, Marner is going to get paid this summer, whether it's by Toronto or somebody else via offer sheet or trade or whatever. You know, Marner's probably going to get $11 million at least coming up. 
and it's just I don't know. This 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 is a baffling way to uh to run, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens in you know five years down the road from now when all these uh contracts are tying up teams' cap space. Yeah, and I agree. Uh, I think that it's just going to be very hard for teams to maneuver around the cap when so many players are making double digits now. Uh, and I think it just puts teams like, let's say, Dallas and the Flyers, who have their two superstars locked up to single-digit contracts, like those deals look really good now. Like the Jamie Benn deal and the Tyler Sagan deal and even the Claude Giroux deal. These are deals that the Flyers and the Stars should be counting their blessings because now you're seeing what other superstars are getting. And to mention, to build off your point about like that middle ground deal, like look at Nathan McKinnon. Like right now, he's probably on the best contract in the NHL. He's making, I think, just over six million dollars. Because you best believe that if he was signing his contract back then with the market it is now, he would be right up there with the rest of these guys. And it just seems like all these young players they want to get it right out of the gate, and they want to get like the shorter term contract. Like Austin Matthews got like that five-year deal, so they don't eat up any years of UFA status. So yeah, it's going to get tougher and tougher for teams, I think, to lock up and keep the band together, as a, uh, as the saying goes. Giroux signed in the summer of 2014, <laughs> five years ago, and that's you know, and it's it's amazing how big of things have gotten. You know, Giroux signed, you know, then he'd probably be making nine, ten million dollars. Granted, he had his best seasons after 14-15, but. I don't know. This this cap thing is gonna get gonna get out of control pretty quick. So it should be interesting to see uh, this league over the next four or five years. Uh, the Flyers have made a move. Let's we'll kind of t- we'll touch upon that to wrap up the show because it's gonna get to another point here. But Flyers made the move of acquiring Hayes for a fifth round pick. They are living up to their promise of being aggressive this summer. Uh, Anthony, what other teams do you think we're going to see be the most aggressive uh, in this coming offseason? Well, I don't know if they're going to maybe be aggressive, but I think Edmonton's going to be active to try and right that ship um, of that debacle that was this last season. I think uh, Winnipeg is going to be very active to try and get all their missing pieces together. We know Truba's on the market. Let's see if Myers is going to be able to re-sign there. They still have the RFAs in Connor and Line and other teams that might be aggressive. I really think the Montreal Canadiens are going to be aggressive. And I think they've been lying in the weeds for a bit now. But their window's now because they have Shea Weber locked up long-term. They have Carey Price locked up long-term. And they're not spring chickens. These are guys that have to win now because they're not getting any younger, especially Shea Weber. So I could fully expect the Montreal Canadiens to use their their big amount of cap space to go after a guy like Matt Duchesne. I think the Skinner deal sets the bar for Duchesne that he's going to get at least $9.5-$10 million, especially that he's a centerman. And I wouldn't be surprised if they go after Eric Carlson as well because I think that Montreal knows that they only have a certain window now to win with guys like Price and Weber, and they're going to go all in use the cap space that they have right now and just worry about the consequences down the road. God, Carey Price is 31 already. Good Lord. Getting old. Yeah, I heard the rumors that Eric Carlson to Montreal, and my immediate thought was, please, I want to see a Weber-Carlson pair so badly. That would be fantastic. It would have been better, you know, five years ago, but man, 
be great. Uh, yeah, I, I think they took a team that was a giant mess, and they made some moves, and some of their young guys, like uh, uh, Kanemi came in and was great, and has really kind of helped right the ship. A couple big players could change them around. Winnipeg is, I think, feeling the pressure now to make things happen, to kind of salvage their playoff run. Obviously, things did not go right this year. Um, and, you know, now that Lionel is going to get paid, they really need to make things happen as quick as possible. And, uh, yeah, Julie, you got any thoughts here? Yeah, I think um, a team that is going to be aggressive is going to be the Panthers. Um, I think that now with the new coach and the GMs mentioned something about how they're not going to, like, let – average like except average play or whatever so i think that they're gonna be active this this off season i also think the avalanche are gonna be pretty aggressive um because they're almost there they're already so good they just need a few more pieces and they have the cap space to do it so why not the florida panthers are one of those teams that uh, i'm looking at the roster and I can't think of a team around the league that has like a bigger disparity of talent between their top guys and their bottom guys. They have a lot of, you know, Trocek and Hoffman and Barkov and Huberdeau, Ekblad and Yandel, and some guys on here that, man, what are they doing? And they got Roberto Luongo is 40 and still has three more years on his contract. Oh my god. Oof. Yeah, but the Avalanche probably would be my guess is one of the teams that are going to be... Um, they have a whole ton of cap space. Granted, they have a whole bunch of people to resign, um, but they need some depth, especially at forward, to uh, help them out and kind of help that one line out, the McKinnon Landis Cog uh, Rantanen line. So, those are my again. I think the Flyers are probably going to be up there as well. Hopefully, Fletcher kind of lives up to his word. The Rangers seem like they may be up to something, you know, depending on who they get in the draft. Um, yeah, I think I think it's going to be a pretty interesting offseason all around. I think there are a lot of teams that want to make moves. The Carolina Hurricanes are a team that could be feeling the pressure to kind of make something happen now that they tasted tasted some glory. Uh, the Lightning may be, you know, in a position to make something happen. The Leafs have to figure out what they're doing with Marner and such. So, all in all, I think it's going to be a pretty, uh, pretty interesting summer all around the NHL. Yeah, and I think another team not to sleep on is uh, are the New York Islanders. Because I think that they really surprised people and themselves, to be honest, this year. And they've already locked up uh, Nelson. It doesn't look too promising with Jordan Eberle. But I could see them being a big player for Eric Carlson. You know, word came out that they're going to shop Nick Letty and Thomas Hickey. And I think that they're going to make a big push for Eric Carlson. They were in on the Matt Duchesne um, sweepstakes at the deadline. I've always thought that he would be a picture-perfect fit in... um, New York, imagine him playing behind Matthew Barzell. That could be dangerous. So I, I think, especially now that they have Lou Lamorello at the helm, I think the Islanders are another team to watch. Ugh. <laughs> well, no one likes the Islanders, but... No. Uh, uh, I, Nobody I've watches always... the Islanders either, based off their attendance records. <laughs> yeah, so Islanders for sure, and even the Dallas Stars. I could see the Dallas Stars uh, making a run for a big name because I think they're kind of similar, like the Hurricanes. Uh, no, not the Hurricanes. Uh, the Panthers, like you mentioned, of the disparity of talent throughout their lineup. So I think some to insulate some guys behind, like Ben and Sagan and Zuccarello. Uh, granted, if he signs, I think they could make a run for some big names too. Got anything to add, Julian? Um. 
another team I was just thinking about that has has a good amount of cap space is the Canucks. The Canucks could probably I don't know if they're going to go after Carlson, but they could make some big moves this summer. I don't know if there's any uh, you know reality to it or not, but I saw somebody bring up a Louis Erickson from Milan Lucic trade, and I laughed for about five minutes when I saw that because <laughs> that would be that would be fantastic to guys that have no value to their team but are on huge contracts for multiple years being traded that would be fantastic (laughs) yeah well i think a lot of that has to do with uh lucic being a vancouver native and i guess it would just make sense like neither guy has worked out in their respective teams louis erickson was vocal about not seeing eye to eye with travis green so but like you know just to echo your point of kind of laughing it would just be swapping albatross for albatross in terms of contracts. Milan Lucic has four years left at six million. Louis Erickson has three years left at six million. So, yeah. yikes! What yeah. are they thinking? Neither two team, neither teams were are looking too pretty right about now. No, man, that especially for the Oilers, that six million dollars hurts. And they got to f- have so many holes to address, and they have Milan Lucic on the roster taking up $6 million in cap space. Yeah, well, those are kind of deals that that when it happened, like, like everyone knew that they were going to be bad contracts, and then you have these so-called experts running the teams that are just handing out these contracts, and I think that's when the trend of giving big-time dollars to free agents kind of took a, a hike, like you referred to before. And... It just goes back to Skinner signing this money this offseason is a direct result of three years ago guys like Lucic and Erickson getting $6 million. And I think there's a direct correlation between the two. I was actually just going to bring up the uh, what I was talking about earlier with the, the, the years when things kind of calmed down. Both Lucic and Erickson were signed in the summer 2016 when things were kind of you know on the decline a little bit as far as contracts. And you look at them now and $6 million, it's like, what are they thinking? You know, uh, so crazy stuff around the league with these big contracts well since we are all flyers fans let's wrap up with some flyers news obviously kevin hayes acquired from the winnipeg jets for a fifth round pick in this year's draft the negotiating rights i should say to kevin hayes were acquired uh anthony you got any uh news up there about kevin hayes well it are it's not a slam dunk that they're going to sign him uh i know that he's going to fly into philly this week to negotiate the contract um, there's been rumors that he potentially wants to go back to New York. Um, but let's see what happens once they meet and start negotiating face to face in terms of assuming if he were to sign, I, I don't think it's the best option they could have gone down. Um, but I don't mind it because he brings some size up the middle. I like the fact that he's a penalty killer would take some pressure off of Katoria and Claude Giroux. Uh, and I like that he could potentially play the wing if, you know, eventually Patrick takes the next step and gets into the top six role and Morgan Frost or what have you become the third line center. There's the flexibility with Hayes to move him to the wing, if so be it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm kind of frightened on what the contract might be based on what Brock Nelson got six times six. I think like that is kind of the bar for it. So if you were to sign, I would see it coming in around there. But yeah, I don't like love the move exceptionally, but I think it's a good move. I, I think I it shows that Fletcher is serious about improving this team, 
And uh, all in all, I'd say I'm pretty happy with it. I'm pretty much with you on that boat. You know, Hayes would not my, not be my ideal target. I wasn't super thrilled with him when you know there was talk about him. You know, earlier in the summer when rumors were just happening, and I wasn't super thrilled. I don't think he's you know the best option there. For me, the whole reason you want to bring in a second line center is you want to take the offensive responsibility away from Nolan Patrick. And I think if you're going to do that, you want somebody that can produce, you know, 50 plus point seasons, maybe even the 60, if you're lucky. And Hayes just, he had a good season last year, but I don't know if he's the guy yet, but at the same time, I am very much with you in the sense that it shows that they're going to do something. It shows that Fletcher is serious about making moves and making changes and making additions. Cause after years and years of the nothingness that was around Hextall, you know, at least they're gonna. At least he's trying to make the team happen. You know whether he signs, and that's kind of the big one for me as well. Is that contract's gonna kind of worry me a little bit? You know, I, I would be hesitant to give him big money. You know, just because he's gonna maybe flounder, and if Nolan Patrick does take a step forward, then Hayes is gonna be back in the third line center, and I don't really want to pay a third line center, you know, six plus million dollars a year. And I think there are other holes to fill, um, or at least better players to fill said holes. So I don't know what happens this summer. Uh, Julie, you got any thoughts on uh, Kevin Hayes? Yeah, I mean, he does play, like, he has played wing in the past. So, I, I like the fact that they're looking at someone who has that flexibility when it comes to playing center and wing because that gives Patrick a little leeway for when he is ready to play the 2C. Um, I'm not really mad about this. I'm going to be way more happy if he signs um, once that happens. But I don't think that this is some terrible thing some of flyers twitter was all up in arms about it but i think that it's it's a promising promising like foreshadowing of what's going to happen this summer from chuck i think that he wants to be active and he's already taken the steps to be active for us um with as much as he can do and i think that hayes will fit in with our core i think that he's going to fit in with the flyers pretty well uh, his style of play, I think, is going to mesh pretty well with our with our core that we have right now. Um, and all in all, I'm pretty happy with it. Don't even get me started about Flyers Twitter. I could rant about that for days. <laughs> but, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a bad move. I think it's fine. I think it's going to be an addition. Um, obviously, with Hayes here, you know, whether he signs is still up in the air. And... I, it's going to be interesting. If he signs, you know, the cap space is going to be rather limited for everybody else, especially after they sign uh, Sanheim, Connecting, and Provorov. But uh, what other targets, and maybe Anthony, you're up there, have heard any rumors, uh, what other targets do you think the Flyers are going to try and pursue this summer? Well, I think they're going to go hard after a uh, top four defenseman, uh, a right shot. I think that Truba would be the ideal pick. The problem with Truba is that you got to know that a lot of teams are going to be going hard for him. So I think any deal involving Truba would start with the 11th overall pick. And based on uh, some sources relayed to me from uh, uh, David Pagnota, I think that it would also involve Ghost. Uh, Bob McKenzie uh, brought this up on a show in Winnipeg where he said that Goss's beer may be the odd man out if that comes. So I think that Truba would be the ideal target. Um, I don't know if Carlson is a realistic option. I, I just I can't really see them going after him. Um, and I think the goaltending is still up in the air. I'm kind of surprised that they haven't locked up either Elliott or preferably for me, Talbot, 
So I think that's something to keep an eye on. Maybe they'll look again outside the organization to find a goalie for to back up Carter Hart. I don't remember if you were on that show or not, but the only podcast uh, probably around the trade deadline, we had a bunch of the fourth period guys on and, you know, they mentioned somebody like Jonathan quick as a potential option for the flyers backup. And, um, the issue with that, and especially going back to the Kevin Hayes thing, he's what quick is making what $6 million for another four or five years. And, you know, at this point, Carter Hart does seem like he's the guy, but I would want somebody who could handle the starts if necessary, somebody like a Jonathan Quick, but, you know, that cap hit is going to be atrocious, and I think when you're finding star goaltenders or, you know, a top backup goaltender, you're going to be paying them quite a bit of money, and I think that's why Talbot or Elliott would be the way to go there. Yep, and I agree. Uh, I think think Talbot's the guy for the job. I like what I saw from him in the limited sample size that he displayed – he showed in the past that even when he was a backup to Longquist, that he was a guy who could step in for stretches of games. He was the starter in Edmonton. Obviously, his last few years there didn't go as planned, but I think Patrick Wah would have had a rough time behind that team. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, I think Talbot's the guy. I'm really surprised that Fletcher hasn't gotten it done, but I think he has his hands full a bit right now because I'm also surprised that Provorov and Sanheim and Konechny haven't gotten done. But yeah, I, I think Talbot is the ideal choice because I know uh, one of your colleagues from OMB keeps bringing up Jake Allen. That's not a guy I would go after. <laughs> but uh, he's been beating that drum for a bit now. But uh, I, I just don't think there's a better option to get from outside the organization. Jonathan Quick, I'm with you. Yeah, he would be the ideal guy. But do you really want to invest over $5 million into Quick as a backup? So I, I just think that Talbot's the, guy, the perfect guy for the job. And that would be my... I saw the Jake Allen thing as well, and I believe we talked about it on one of my past shows. I don't remember if this one or the Angry Negative show, whatever it was. But the issue with somebody like Jake Allen is the consistency. You know, you never know what you're going to get. He's a Peter Morazic 2.0 in the sense that he's either going to play lights out or he's going to get destroyed time after time. And you don't need that, you know, especially if Hart goes down to an injury and you need somebody solid back there. I think Talbot can at least provide stability back there if Hart goes down. You know, he got lit up the last five games of the season, but so did everybody because the Flyers completely gave up once they were eliminated from the playoffs. So I, he did not, he's, Talbot certainly did not get a fair shake here in Philly this season. I believe he played, what, three, four games. He played 90 minutes the first month and a half he was here before the last five games of the season. So uh, I, he would be my guy as well. I, I do like Elliot. I just don't think that he's got the durability factor at this point. You know, I think he's he played very well this season when Hart went down after the stadium series game. You know, Elliot gave them a fighting chance and he has when he's healthy, but you know, it comes down to he's had what, two, three major core surgeries over the last couple of years and uh you know, it's just a matter of time I think before he can't go at a top level anymore. So uh Talbot would be my Talbot would be would be my guy as well. Uh given that they could probably get him relatively cheap. He can play some games, and there aren't many other options out there without making a big trade. Yeah, and I agree. And in terms of the only other guy that I could see them going from with from outside the organization would be Curtis McElhaney. But I would think that Caroline's going to lock him up after what he did for them this season. Yeah, you know, I think McElhaney could be one of those other uh, cheap options as well for the backup. But, you know, in an ideal world, and again, this isn't the ideal world. You know, there's a salary cap. It's not like, you know, they, they can get whoever they want. But I would find the best backup possible for Hart. I think you got to take care of the kid uh, the best they can. I would 
not play him more than maybe 50 games this summer or this season rather you still kind of want to work him in. I don't think you want to throw him into the fire yet, playing him, you know, 55, 60 games and finding somebody that could carry the weight, you know, during the season. And if he gets hurt, then they need uh, need the best option they can find. Yeah, and that's it. I, I think that you hit it right on the head that you don't want to throw Hart right into the fire right away. I just think it's crucial that they get a sustainable option because I know that a lot of fans were beating the drum to keep Stolars as the backup because they did have that good run where both of them were kind of bouncing off of each other, playing well. But I don't think that would have been a good route to take because two inexperienced guys, and if Hart does probably inevitably go through a rough stretch, is Stolarz the guy that you want to lean on in that regard? So, yeah, I, I, I just think it's good. It's crucial to get a veteran guy. Yep, and uh, that's all on the all we have on the docket this week. So, uh, Anthony, where can people uh, people find you on Twitter? Uh, at a demarco twenty five is my handle, and you can check out all of my work and everyone else who works at the fourth period at TFP. And Julia, we have lost connection with her, but uh, you can find her on Twitter at JK underscore Kender. She is also the Leafs writer for NationalPuck.com at NationalPuck. You can find me on Twitter at DanTheFlyerFan at BrotherlyPuck. This show as well as all the others at Brotherly underscore Pod. We will be back next weekend to talk the wrap-up of the Stanley Cup and any other news that happens between now and then. I will be back on Thursday night with the Angry and Negative show as we have our playoff wrap-up as well. So, everybody, thank you for listening. This has been episode three of Coast to Coast. Until next week, goodbye and good night.